The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. I'm proud to call it home. This is my country. I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Courtney. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. It's a beautiful spring Sunday morning. It's It really is spring. We had no rain this week. Baseball is underway. The A's are doing well. The Giants, not so much. Um, And we saw this week the beginning of time in the black hole. Fascinating. I mean, it doesn't give credit to the whole team. Nobody, Nobody should be picking out who wrote numbers of lines of code, as the trolls are on the Internet. Um, It's it's an amazing accomplishment. Um, and we should all be um, amazed, thrilled, and humbled by what um, was accomplished. There are a whole lot of people in politics and in the media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. My purpose is different. I've come to give you information that will enable you to make independent judgments on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment, whether it's a contribution or volunteering or writing a letter to the editor or calling your congressperson and expressing your opinion. I'm a businesswoman, I'm not a politician, so I usually start with the numbers, but we're gonna do something a little different this week. The majority of this hour, we're gonna devote to a discussion with Dan Trimble. We're gonna talk about what what really is behind the word cyber? You know, we hear it cyber followed by a hyphen and then cybersecurity, you know, cyber technology, et cetera. And you as the average citizen, you're not a technology professional. You need to pay attention and we're hoping to give you some information to help you to understand when you hear those words, what they mean to you. And they do mean something to you. But first, we got a couple of quickies. Those Walker Hayes tickets. Remember, there's a sold-out Walker Hayes concert at Clolachance in Morgan Hill on April 29th. If you've never been there, it's an incredible venue. It's always a fun crowd, and I've seen Walker Hayes in concert, and he's really, really good. I, unfortunately, will be out of town, so I can't use those tickets. Their face value is $50. So, as I said week before last, I'm happy to give them to the highest bidder over 50 bucks. Um, The $50 plus the upside all will go to the USL. If you're interested in making a bid over the current high bid of $100, 
send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. You've got a week left to determine that you really want those tickets. It'll be a warm spring evening. You'll have a great time. Uh, Jacob last week raised some questions in our discussion of um, uh, my uh, impressions of the Republican Jewish Coalition meeting and Donald Trump's appearance there. Uh, and he raised the subject of the USS Liberty at, as a, which was bombed by uh, an Israeli torpedo. Um, uh, this is more dance territory than mine, uh, but it was a torpedo bomb um, that hit it. And the, there is a conspiracy theory out there that the Israelis did it to prolong the war. Well, I went to the um, Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Encyclopedia Britannica goes into um, um, a bit of detail and, and actually determines that a ceasefire between Israel and Jordan and Egypt was completed on the 7th and 8th of June, um, but Syria refused to agree to that ceasefire, and that's why the attack on the 9th took place. Uh, because they were still shelling uh, Israeli positions from the Golan Heights. And the attack on the USS Liberty took place on the 7th. So yes, there is a book, a 2015 book, that claims the bombing was deliberate. But um, a thorough re- um, I thoroughly researched, thank you, Google, um, about 100 different accounts of what happened uh, and it really does, if you look at records released by the CIA, the U.S. State Department, the Navy, and the Israeli military and foreign minister, um, it really does appear that this was a fog of war accident. And for the conspiracy theorists, the USS Liberty pulled into an Israeli port, and it was the Israelis who, in addition to paying reparations for the attack, um, have... Um, Uh, did the initial repairs to the USS Liberty that made it uh, seaworthy to return to Norfolk. So I think we can say it was an unfortunate accident. It was part of the fog of war. And if we could have a two-state solution and peace in the Middle East, we would not have to worry about the potential for a recurrence of that event. So much for that one. So as I said, we're going to spend most of this hour talking with Dan Trimble um, about what is cyber and what does it mean to you. And then when he comes back from his um, current deployment, um, he's going to come back and we're going to talk about what are the risks of cyber. What does it mean in terms of uh, how you should evaluate um, uh the strategies of potential uh, candidates, et cetera, in terms of national security. Do they understand what the real risks to us are? So Dan is an intelligence and cyber research advisor for companies who need to understand how countries, markets, and strategies are shifting in response to strategic threats around the world, whether they're geopolitical, cyber, or industrial. He's also the publisher of Cyber Risk Report, an emerging newsletter consolidating all the global news and hidden coverage on cyber risk, strategy, and policy into 
<clears throat> just the developments you need to know about. It's it's a very well done newsletter. Um, you know, it's a couple of issues in, and I have learned a lot in a very short period of time. Uh, it doesn't take a long time to read it. Um, he's also, um, as I said, he's about to be deployed. He is a lieutenant commander in the United States Coast Guard Reserve, where he's deployed in the United States and overseas, supporting a broad range of military intelligence, cybersecurity, and disaster response operations. His background does straddle both the public and private sector for more than 20 years, and he brings us an uncommon perspective, that of someone who, with deep operational and decision-making know-how in both worlds, in both the civilian and the military world. He most recently worked in the U.S. intelligence community as the number two at Cyber Intelligence Analysis Center in California and Washington, overseeing day-to-day -day operations for several national-level missions, as well as global cyber policy and planning. Before he was in charge of cyber threats to the U.S. space program, <clears throat> he was in charge of cyber threats to the U.S. space program uh, and critical infrastructure. An important term, critical infrastructure. Keep that one in mind because it's a really important term. We'll actually be discussing later on this morning's show, and it's a topic you and I, um, you, as a listener community, will be discussing in the future um, because it's the one potential. Um, it's, it's well past time for Congress to address the subject of infrastructure, and we don't mean filling in potholes. So during Dan's time in the intelligence community, he's earned seven awards, including a Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and was named the Intelligence Officer of the Year for his work on several first-ever interagency op uh, cyber operations. We need to be clear that Dan's comments are his own opinions. Yes, he has permission from the Coast Guard to be with us today, but these are Dan's opinions and no part of our discussion are representative of either his clients or any of the government agencies with which he's affiliated or with whom he works. And we are gonna take a quick commercial break and we'll be back for the rest of the hour with Dan Trimble and cyber. We're gonna learn a lot. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Dan Trimble, and we will put the link to both the Cyber Report and Dan's direct email uh, into the podcast version of the show so that you can reach out to him directly. Um, but we're just going to start with one. Thank you so much, because I know you're, you're actually leaving on deployment today. So, you know, one, thank you for your service. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for being here. Um, so, you know, we hear every day about attacks and hacking and all of this kind of stuff. Um, at Facebook or, at, you know, even this week at Amazon, my goodness. Um, but it's so much bigger than that. You and I both know that. So 
It really is a question, as you said in your outline, before you can understand attacks, adversaries, and mitigation options, you have to understand the environment that we operate in. So what is cyberspace? Well, thank you again, Joyce, for having me this morning. I'm, you know, it's, it's a large and almost unwieldy, uh, unwieldy complex topic. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting into some of specific areas uh, over our conversations about cyber risk. But to really understand what that risk looks like and to look at how governments, businesses, and even we as individuals can begin to mitigate uh, and reduce that risk, you do have to understand kind of that whole what we in government we refer to as the operating environment. So what I really want everyone to walk away with today are kind of an understanding of two different things what cyberspace really is, what it encompasses, and also what we call a cyber attack surface, another term that I'll talk about in a little bit. These are foundational pillars to understanding cyber risk and why cyber threats are so important and important to all of us uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Some obvious, like when our bank accounts get hacked, some not so obvious in the sense that everything's interconnected and that's going to impact nearly every aspect of our lives. So some of this is going to be pretty elementary because I wanted to start with kind of a broad overview and evolve our discussions from that foundational understanding into some of the specific risk areas that we're going to talk about in time. And why it and, and one of the things we're going to address over time is what if Congress did something? What if Congress actually that would be nice. took this yeah what we one of the things I hope you as listeners walk away with from today's discussion and the subsequent discussions we're going to have is just how big, just how important, and just how potentially dangerous this space is while Congress thinks infrastructure is potholes. Indeed. But first, please think of the world and everything you can see in it, everything you know about it. Continents, countries, borders, physical borders, political borders, you have oceans and waterways, electricity providers, office buildings, laws and regulations. All of these things are designed around the concept of national sovereignty and are defined by those borders. You have markets and governments and industry that operate in each. It's a world we've known since the dawn of human progress, and it shapes our every engagement and our interactions. And it's a world we can travel across too, but it takes hours, sometimes days, depending on how far you're going. Now, to understand a cyber operating environment and what it looks like, I want you to begin to imagine the scale and magnitude which cyber risk redefines everything. So think of cyberspace as another world overlaid on top of that physical world. And Thank in you. this cyberspace world, there are no geopolitical borders. There's no natural borders, no real borders of any kind. And it too is one that can be traveled across, or at least the information from a computer can, but it takes literally fractions of a second rather than the hours or days we take to physically move across it. Now, because this cyberspace world encompasses and impacts everything in our physical world, it does not, but does not have the same geopolitical and legal distinctions we have always governed ourselves by. So it raises serious questions about how do you enforce what should be reasonable behavior. Let's look at it another way. Laws long ago and internationally accepted established what is quote-unquote normal behavior for country-to-country interactions. If you fire a missile over the border into an adversarial country, it's an act of war. Mm -hmm. Clear cut. Perhaps even likely so, even if you don't actually kill anyone. But if you fire cyber attack across those same borders and you use it to, say, steal intellectual property, is that an act of war? What if a cyber attack took out an electric grid, which in turn took out the power of a community hospital, resulting in the deaths of patients who couldn't be treated? Should that be 
considered any different than a missile that lands in somebody's house? Reasonable people would argue it certainly should, but the point is the law is not that clear cut. It's not black and white, and there's still a lot of gray area when it comes to cyber operations that have yet to coalesce into any kind of standards of normative behavior between countries. And that offers um, countries with ill intent great, great opportunity. It also, in, and we don't mean just from a, a kinetic warfare sense, but um, clearly, as we are seeing now um, in the trade negotiations with China, um, differing laws, differing philosophies about what it means to electronically steal from someone else or electronically to snoop or eavesdrop on somebody else. Well, that's that's an important point. I touched a moment ago on the theft of intellectual property, which is a longstanding problem, but it's one that's greatly exacerbated by cybersecurity. And so when we think about cyber, it's important to remember that it impacts both economic security and national security. The defense side of it, the national security side of that, is relatively obvious. Think of those missiles again, the cyber attacks against, say, military or government entities. But there's a number of countries in the world who argue economic security is national security and vice versa. They don't really draw any distinction between them. So what they allow their military cyber operators to do is fairly broad. Another piece to this equation, though, is attribution. And that's something we're going to talk a lot about in, in coming weeks. How, how you know who did an attack. And it's, it's well beyond today's conversation, but it's important to understand for now that attribution in general, it's pretty hard to do. Um, and it can be fairly slow to – it can actually be very slow depending on, on the specifics of any given cyber attack. So you have this kind of political Wild West nature of cyberspace with very few laws to guide or set what should be normal and acceptable behavior. And you have the challenge of attribution making it relatively easy for cyber criminals to do this kind of work anonymously. And that encourages cybercrime and a lot of it in the form of hackers who try to exploit people – businesses, governments, in order to get something financial out of it, for example. Sometimes it's as simple as hacking banks. Sometimes it's a ransomware attack, shutting off access to your, to your PC or all of your data and forcing all the employees in a company to pay up in Bitcoin or some other anonymous cryptocurrency or lose their data. Sometimes it's something more sophisticated. I'm reminded of a uh, 2012-ish, give or take a couple years, case in which cyber criminals hacked their way into the port of Antwerp, Belgium, in order to modify shipping container manifests before ships had actually arrived. They were able to do this and funnel hundreds of millions of dollars worth of drugs, guns, and money for almost three years through that effort. There are a lot of ways cybercrime impacts us, and it's not only rampant, but it is growing, significantly so, with no sign of abating. And so next week, we'll start looking at some of the specific risk areas about why, it, why that's continuing. As we all know, well, most of us have been hacked at some point or another, even if we don't necessarily realize it. People can also get exploited directly. Your own computer can be hacked. Your identity can be stolen using information gleaned from hacks at places like Equifax or your bank. And yes, believe it or not, there really are people who respond to the email from a nephew or business executive associated prince of Nigeria offering you a cut of a $25 million estate if you'd only wired them some money ahead of time. There's a lot of reasons why this kind of stuff continues. Um, yeah, actually, I, I know somebody who was uh, approached and, and did put out some money. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. People, people can be gullible, and some of these uh, of these attempts have become quite sophisticated. 
Um, and that's the key because what's changing in cyberspace is that the sophistication level, and we won't even talk for now about artificial intelligence, but there's a lot of things that are making, making these kinds of attacks much easier to be executed. And a lot – It's it makes people a lot more receptive to the risk itself. Yeah, well, the the very basic – the very basic nature of this is everything from that little phone in your hand. Everything in this world is now interconnected. And I want you to hold on to that thought while we take a quick commercial break. <clears throat> Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. I'd fire somebody. Who, who would you fire exactly? We're back, by the way, Joyce. Oh, well, um, well, when we get to that point. You're not going to fire me, are you? No. Okay, that's all, I, that's all that matters. That's all you care about. <laughs> yeah. Um. um no, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about about um, uh, programming one hundred and one, but we're back with Dan Trimble, um, and and when we left, we were talking about cyber, an interconnected world, in which you know you, you really cannot escape. If you heard the news this week, if you make the mistake of leaving your Alexa on, they're listening at Amazon. 10,000 people are transcribing your every Alexa thought. Are we really surprised, though? And some that we didn't even, and some you probably didn't want Alexa to hear. Uh, am I surprised? Um, not that, that they can listen, but they are listen, but that they are spending a fortune listening and transcribing. And well, it's the transcription that, and, and Dan is nodding. It's the transcription that worries me. Well, what, what are what, they going to do with bothered, that data? What bothered me about that report, if I can interject, was the fact that they're more concerned about the keywords you're using so they can, you know, mm-hmm. market to you. Mm-hmm. But there have been occasions where they have they've heard domestic uh, domestic disputes and they haven't mm-hmm. they haven't reported that. Mm-hmm. Where it's kind of like, oh, that's none of our business. We just want to know how much, you know, what, mm-hmm. what what brand of diapers you're interested in. I don't remember the specifics, but I, I vaguely recall a, a situation with an Amazon Alexa device uh, maybe a little over a year or so ago where it actually did dial 911 upon he- overhearing a domestic disturbance situation. And the, the cops had showed up at this house and everyone was just baffled how how the cops knew anything was going on. It turned out that the Alexa device was listening and somehow triggered a 911 call. I uh, think I think that's an advantage. I think that's it a can good be. thing. Depends, it, depends it, on how it's being used. It can be, but again, as Dan says, it depends on how it's being used and who is listening. And if Amazon's listening in the world of, um, of cyber, who else is listening? Well, and that's a really interesting point because everything is interconnected, right? And all of this, what it points down to is that cybersecurity for all the technology, all the defensive measures that we that we do for network defense, for all the other aspects of how you technologically deal with this, it is fundamentally a human problem. 
and that human problems everything from the fact that you have large numbers of people who still click the link in the email that they get, right? The phishing email that tries to convince you to click on the link, which then installs some malware on your on your device and now provides access directly into the network for for cyber criminals, right? So there's that side of it, and then you also have the laws. What are laws? They're really just an extension of human expectations and human behavior. And humans need to write those laws. This is fundamentally a human problem in terms of how you go about mitigating this. But that interconnectedness is really an essential point. I really want to try and try and go back to for a minute. It's one of the other defining characteristics of the cyber operating environment. It's critical in understanding how and why this impacts nearly every single aspect of our lives. That interconnectedness controls every aspect of society because you at first you have your traditional computer networks. Think of your home wireless router as a gateway to everything else on the internet, right? The home wireless router to your laptop is a network. Your large corporate uh, corporate networks where you can connect for your email and your work files. It's what makes your connection from your phone, the device in your hand, to, well, let's say Amazon, for example. When you call your spouse or your friend on FaceTime or Skype, you're communicating across traditional IP internet protocol networks. These kinds of capabilities and untold thousands more are enabled by that kind of traditional network connectivity. But there's an important distinction that we need to draw here. Networks are networks, but they serve different purposes. You might use some connectivity for personal banking or stock market buys. You might use some for browsing the internet at home. Some networks handle enormously sensitive data which cyber criminals and adversarial governments can find tremendous value in. And that's not always obvious. Just last week, the LA Times uh, published an article about some leaked emails from IT and programmer staff at California's DMV. Now, the DMV is an agency we try not to think about much, lest we get stuck in a three-hour long wait <laughs> to process a piece of paper. But behind the scenes, it handles a great deal more for California than just your car registration and driver's license. For example, California's motor voter law that enables automatic voter registration, for example, is powered through the DMV. Now, apparently, just before the motor voter initiative last, uh, launched, I think it was uh, last April, it was a $15 million IT effort, and some of the new servers were found a few days before the launch to have been communicating back to a server in Croatia. Now, I'm pretty sure we don't have a DMV office in the Adriatic Sea, and, <laughs> and Croatia is a haven for cyber criminals. Can you say DRU? <laughs> that, <laughs> that kind of radio beacon, so to speak, is a standard technique for malicious malware. Why would cyber criminals care about the California DMV? Let's think more broadly than, than just your driver's license and, and car registration. Names addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers, vehicle types and years, political affiliations now. There are lots of ways they can use such sensitive data from knowing more about you to send you more targeted cyber attacks to combining it with now publicly available data from previous hacks like retail stores, banks, credit bureaus, and so on. Going back to where we were, when I said but, everything is... And, but, but going back to your yeah. point about it's humans... Yes. How did this happen? It happened because you had two programming teams, one working at the state computer technology department and one working within DMV. And and trust me, DMV's code is spaghetti. Um, it's very, very old. I have had teams there. Um, and And what happened was in the argument about the actual structure of the new code in the DMV system, they left the back door open for the programmers. 
and then they consolidated the testing cycle. I mean, you know this because you do this in the most sensitive environments. Testing's the most important part of putting a system in production. And they they uh, shrunk the testing to four hours. And so nobody caught the fact there was an open back door, and it still exists. And this is where the problem starts to get unwieldy, because that's not just a testing, programming, cybersecurity testing kind of process. Now, we don't know all the facts of what happened with, uh, with this situation. Maybe it'll come out in time, but... In California in particular, a lot of our IT projects tend to take weeks, months, years even to uh, to go to launch. And when they do, you have a number of problems. They're over budget. They're long behind schedule. There's many different reasons why, many different policy reasons why, from the, the cost of doing anything in California to the pressure that is on staff to make sure things get done on time means you start to look for shortcuts. And sometimes those shortcuts come out of testing. Sometimes it comes out of design requirements, steps, things, the external design reviews. There's a lot of different ways that you can go about building these things and to make sure that, that you're able to address those kinds of those kinds of challenges. Whether or not they're, they actually did all those, I don't know all the facts here. Um, but yeah, it is a human problem, and it's something that we can mitigate to a large extent using laws, using regulations, having minimum standard security requirements for publicly sensitive networks would be a reasonable starting point. Well, what, what uh, DHS said last week, along with the FBI, is that, is that every, every state has vulnerabilities that can be exploited by, through cyber in their election systems. So, you know, you can you can carry this fantasy a little further and think about what it is that the Croatians were doing as a front for probably the GRU um, in in California in terms of changing the voter registration rolls, et cetera. In all of that, because there is such fragility around the law. Um, and around, as you say, the human problem um, puts us all at risk. Yes, it does. One of the other areas that, that brings up a great deal of risk is something that we call the Internet of Things, also known as IoT. Mobile devices, <laughs> medical implants, cars, watches, devices everywhere we look now have network connectivity or communication capabilities that are built in. Even toasters and refrigerators sometimes have that connectivity now. Run out of mayonnaise, scan a barcode on the empty bottle on the face of some refrigerators, and you can have replacements queued up to be shipped to your house and in your next grocery delivery. These kinds of devices are expanding rapidly. In cybersecurity, we have a term called the attack surface. It's the entirety of all the different ways in which an attack in, in which a hacker can attack a device, a person, or a target. It's kind of sum total of all of those different things. If you have significant numbers of IoT devices, it just adds more risk. It adds more opportunity for hackers to potentially exploit you. Next week, when we start talking about specific risks, we're going to start to dive into 5G networks. Most people think of that as just their cell phone working faster. 5G, however, is nothing short of the next industrial revolution. It is going to greatly expand the attack service in utterly unprecedented ways. And, and on that thought of it as the next industrial revolution, we're going to take that necessary commercial break and we're going to come back at that point. The next industrial revolution. G5. For 5G revenue.
You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Dan Trimble. And as we went to commercial break, Dan broke the news that 5G is, in fact, the next industrial revolution. This is not just faster phones. This is a whole new ball game. Well, and the reason why is because it brings massive speed improvements. Speed and stability improvements are orders of magnitude greater than any wireless technology before it. And along with that, because of all that improvement in, in speed and reliability and connectivity, we're expecting Internet of Things devices to grow exponentially, literally exponentially, bringing new connectivity and performance to vertical industries and governments that have simply never been seen before. Think of your supply chain warehouses that no longer have to rely on uh, unreliable wired connections or Bluetooth or a smorgasbord of, of other connectivity technologies who n- will now have greater range, greater performance, greater reliability, and a single 5G standard. It's going to enable a lot of vertical improvements that we're going to see in countless industries. And along so, with that, the devices that need to connect to it to enable the application of it. For example, from uh, the point of sale, when you when you check out at the grocery store uh, in today's world, two or three systems are engaged in the process of getting back to what we call the economic reorder um, point in at the manufacturer site where they start shipping to distribution. And what Dan is saying is when 5G is fully implemented, that won't require two or three systems. It'll be instantaneous. We're also not talking about something that's 10 years out. We're talking about something that might actually be a year out, if not less, in some parts of the world. Going back to that term we talked about earlier, the attack surface. Remember, the attack surface is kind of the sum aggregate total of all the different ways in which a hacker can can target and exploit you through, cyber, through cyberspace. The attack surface, when you start looking at things like 5G, grows by exponential proportions because the opportunity for exploitation will grow to such such a scale and it's hard to really kind of comprehend any kind of left and right limits, right? Autonomous if, cars, for example. If you've got a, autonomous cars, if uh, pacemakers, you've got all kinds of devices that, that might start now communicating ac- across all other devices. Today, and we, the, today we might have a billion uh, Internet of Things devices. Down the road, we have things like 5G and widespread pl- use around the world. You might have 10, 15, 20, 30 billion. You might have huge numbers more all of which now present new opportunities for cyber attacks. Well, and and isn't isn't from an economic from a purely economic positive point of view, isn't isn't it true that um, economies like Vietnam, China, etc., which don't have the investment we have in and the Europeans have in legacy technology. Oh, absolutely. For, for example, refrigerators. You know, I mean, you're not going to go out and buy a new refrigerator because it will allow you to barcode the order of your of your next jar of mayonnaise. You're going to buy a new refrigerator when you need one. And 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 in the developing world where they don't have these things, um, they will get this 5G capable equipment will be there first. So won't won't by an order of magnitude, the uh, implications of this be felt more in the competition between the developed and the and the developing world i mean if we you know forget if if we ignore the national security threats 
let's look and look at the economic threats. Aren't those equally potent? They certainly could be. In fact, one of the interesting things is that in a number of third world countries, uh, second world, the developing world kind of overall, take your old POTS telephone systems, right? We've mm-hmm. had them for decades in the United States and Europe and other places around the developed world. Those are not really being built out much because cellular networks are more convenient and they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a lot of growth there in Internet Things devices like mobile phones and places where some people might not necessarily expect it because we think third world, we think poor, and we have some expensive data plans, stuff like that. The cost for a lot of that kind of stuff might start to come down too. But you do have these networks that are being built instead of kind of the old way that, that we scaled and grew our economy here and the infrastructure to support it. A lot of these other developing countries are able to kind of leapfrog over that over that history. We and saw that straight in, into yeah. We saw that in networks. cellular. Yes. They 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 leapfrogged us in cellular because they had no investment in the legacy lines. Right. And it was cheaper and faster and, and certainly more convenient to be able to go straight into cellular technology than it is, say, your traditional old telephone system. And so isn't that something that American industry has to and, – and, and our European partners have to be thinking about in terms in, – in the very immediate future? You know, is it is it um, breaking up Amazon and Facebook and Google that's important or is it enabling um, a cyber – uh, economy that has different um, a dimensions to it. It's, as you say, a, a second industrial revolution well, between the platform and the application. I think there's an extent to which it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. No yeah. matter what we do, you can't stop the halt of human progress. And that's a good thing, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but you have to be prepared for all the different scenarios. You have to be prepared for the economic opportunities. You have to be prepared for the economic competition. You have to be prepared for the security and the defensive means of it. And you need to start looking at at laws and regulations and public policies and public-private partnerships and all the different things, all the different tools that we have in in government and industry to be able to, excuse me, to be able to, to mitigate the threats and embrace the opportunities. And we're going to see a lot more of that, I think, in the next I, five years, ten years, as a lot of starts to come into place. I think we're going to see a lot more of these kinds of opportunities come up, and that is a good thing, provided we've done what we need to do to make sure that we're that we're safe, that information is protected, that people are protected from the potential potentially nefarious uses of it. Going back to that cyber operating environment and everything being interconnected, because this is also an, an important point. We talked earlier about critical infrastructure, and that's also one of the things that is going to play out with a lot of different countries around the world and not just the developed ones. Critical infrastructure, it's, it's really hard to get into this field without going full geek on you all, but a useful way to look <laughs> at this is that governments and business differentiate between normal networks, including Internet of Things, and critical infrastructure, quote-unquote, networks. Those are networks that control the economic, physical, security, safety, or the other fundamental pillars of human society. Think of the electricity generation and power distribution. Think of water supply systems, oil refineries and gas distribution pipes, stock markets, financial transaction networks, even a global GPS system. Without functioning systems, these capabilities could be greatly diminished or even shut off entirely in a cyber attack. They are just that. They are absolutely mission critical to our daily lives in every way. Now, 
Critical infrastructure networks are often powered by something called industrial control or SCADA systems. These are combinations of sensors for reading data, for reading uh, industrial input and output, and hardware for making logical decisions about how industrial operations should be managed. They can control how much electricity is generated or the amount of voltage that goes downstream. They can control the viscosity level of oil and and countless other industrial safety and operational parameters. Many of these ICS and SCADA systems are, frankly, sending ducks in cybersecurity, and we'll discuss why in, in, in coming weeks. But for now, it's not just the computers and networks in our actual physical control. We need to remember that GPS satellites and their ground stations that relay signals to and from the satellites, and ultimately to your phone, your car, your other devices, drive global time signals. For example, everything from your PC to ATM machines and gas pumps are dependent on having a highly accurate precision reading of those time signals. You have cargo container ships, particularly major ports that are often automatically unloaded by computerized cranes and inventory control systems. These are all interconnected with databases of crew and cargo manifests, handheld devices for shore workers to, to work operations, trucking and train receivers that carry goods inland, and so on. Your supply chains are at risk, some more than others. This alone we could spend an entire hour on. Cyber risk is everywhere we think it is, and it's also everywhere we don't think it is. Even the Amish might be vulnerable. They have world-class products like furniture that are distributed to a lot of places, and they too depend on banks for, for financial transactions. Is their supply chain intact? Are their banks secure? What about an artificial eye or, or pacemaker that has a Bluetooth signal for, reserving, for receiving firmware updates or to relay medical information to your doctor? Not all devices are created equally. And while it would be difficult to exploit a device like this without having tremendous insight to how it works with each individual patient, it's not at all inconceivable that a cyber attack could be delivered to such a device. Do we have good defenses that would prevent, say, a ransomware attack that threatens to turn off your pacemaker if you don't pay up $300 in Bitcoin? Lastly... Think about the risk if we had a president who had uh, stents or some form, uh, pacemaker, uh, Cheney, the entire eight years he was in uh, the vice presidency had a, had a pacemaker. Think about the, th- you know, the challenge to the Secret Service to, you know, to manage and maintain that. Just think about, um, you know, um, the and you're going to get into this in, in future weeks, but think about it. it changes the entire adversarial and cooperative relationship with every entity on Earth. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And not always, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a not-so-good way, and we'll be back in just a minute to close our discussion on that point. Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with Dan Trimble talking about cyber. It's an opportunity and it's a risk. And Dan, do you have a few closing thoughts for us? You know, we talked about, we covered a lot of ground here. And you could easily go dive deep in any one of these rabbit holes and spend an entire hour talking about any one of these. The, the point to take away here is that Cyberspace 
encompasses everything in our lives and impacts us on many different levels, financial levels. It impacts our governments. It impacts the businesses we work with. It impacts our, our daily lives, how we our ability to drive down the street by putting gas from a pump into our car, for example. There's, there's a lot of different risk vectors that all kind of combine to create what we call a cyber attack surface. And that's a really important concept that is absolutely central to understanding the scope, the scale, the magnitude of what we're facing here and why cybersecurity is such an, a daunting challenge. Because for all the investments that, that's been made, a lot of that is right now, frankly, is cyber defense, which is not necessarily enough. We need to be doing some more strategic planning. We need to be thinking ahead, not just on the government and the policy side, but businesses need to be thinking about how to mitigate this risk and means other than just bolstering your network defenses. That's an important piece of it, but it should not be the only piece. And that's where the vast majority of cybersecurity focus gets gets paid paid, paid the attention to right well, now. Well, isn't it? And, and this is a place where I think we want to start thinking about your our next conversation Cyber is so ubiquitous that shouldn't it, for the United States of America, be a cabinet-level endeavor? Yes. Isn't this something Congress has to be involved in every day? And and don't we need in our leaders to look for people who comprehend these changes and can look at how we as a nation can embrace the opportunity and, um, and, and mitigate the challenge? I believe so. And in fact, in our next conversation, I I think I want to take some time to think about and talk about some of the efforts here in California, which as as the saying goes, as goes in California, California. so goes in the nation, nation, right? And so a lot of things are starting here. There's definitely been some efforts to to tackle some some of the, the cyber threats. But when you start looking at them, start looking at the legislation that's passed and how it's written, it's clearly written by a body of people that don't necessarily understand the scope and scale of what we're dealing with and and uh, and how the technology actually works. Maybe that's generational. Maybe it's uh, that we need to have the right policy influencers in Sacramento to help shape that. Maybe it's a lot of different things. But you've got to start there and understand what you have to deal with, what you have to mitigate. And we need to be leveraging both public and private entities. None of us on either side are going to be able to fix this on our own. I think you're absolutely right. And and we'll, we'll look forward to Dan Trimble's next visit with us to talk about some of those what-ifs and what we can go, do going forward uh, when he returns from his uh, most recent deployment that starts this afternoon. And in the meantime, um, we all know the Mueller report's going to in a redacted version, um, consume a really big part of the news cycle this week. We don't know what else is going to happen, and we don't know what's in the report. So I'm a little vague about what we're going to talk about next week. I had hoped that we'd have a conversation about immigration. Um, I, I, I think it's time to uh, take um, the emotion out of it and start to look at it as um, – you know, as I would, as a business issue. You know, it's a problem. Now, how are we going to take it apart and put it back together again in a way that works for everyone? And and um, in the meantime, you all know that Reimagine America is independent and nonprofit. Um, donations are welcome at reimagineamerica.org. Um, I need to warn you that we will be preempted by the A's on April 28th. And on May 5th, two weeks in a row, 
Um, and if you download the uh, 860 application on your phone, um, we will be online on the 5th. And we'll look forward to our conversation next week. And in the meantime, enjoy this 75-degree spring day and have a wonderful week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.